0: Welcome to Metal Matters, a Gimme Radio podcast. I'm your host, Mike Hill, and I'll be leading you on this adventure. We'll be getting into deep discussions about classic records, profiles on up-and-coming bands, and interviews with your favorite artists. You can check out new episodes every week, so be sure to subscribe and never miss out. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in. For this episode of Classic Records, I teamed up with New York hardcore scribe and former music industry exec Howie Abrams. What started out as a discussion about Scratch the Surface, Sick of It All's legendary record, quickly expanded into a recollection of the band's formation in the early days of New York hardcore. Before we get started, if any of you guys want to hit me up, my main social media is Instagram and Facebook. Follow me at Alleged Mike Hill on Instagram, where I post about the show as well as a bunch of personal stuff. On Facebook, I'm Michael Hill. There's a bunch of thousands of guys named Mike Hill out there, so, you know, pay attention. DM me on either platform. If you want to hit me up about the show, let me know what you like or don't like. And even uh, if you have any recommendations or suggestions of stuff you might want to hear. Also, if you're a Gimme Radio listener, check out my DJ show, The Sacred of Profanity. It's a two-hour show, comes out twice a month. I play everything from Susie and the Banshees to Morbid Angel to Agnostic Front. <laughs> I don't know if you remember, but a few years ago, I, I spoke with you briefly. Um, I, I do. Did, I did a piece about Sick of It All. For yeah, Gordon. yeah.
1: For the th- it was like a three-parter. Yeah, it's a right, three-part, so noisy. Like Sort of
0: oral history kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. About the band and uh, you know now now we're going to focus mostly on uh, scratch the surface mm-hmm. as a classic record. Yep. Even though you know that's like the major label record. Yeah. But uh, in a lot of ways, I feel like that record put Sick of It All and New York Hardcore, maybe
1: Hardcore in general, on the map in like a global kind of way. Well, it definitely did uh, an awful lot for them because, you know, you you take for granted like how strong the distribution is for those labels, right? So um, the record definitely gets out there, you know, more so than a lot of other... um, means can offer, you know? I mean, I thought we did a pretty good job with an effect too. And, you know, we had the largest independent distribution network that we were, you know, connected to, but, um, you know, being through the WIA system is a different animal. Right. And, um, I think, you know, whether the people who had heard of them finally caught up or, you know, and and a combination of that, and a lot of new people, you know, uh, hearing about and and you know, able to purchase a record from the band. Um, it was definitely a big period for them, for sure.
0: Before we get started on that, I just want to get a little bit about your background because you've been a pretty big player in the sort of uh, you know label management industry side of things here in New York, and uh, in in your connection with New York City hardcore as well. Mm-hmm. So I mean, you started out. My my awareness of you started with Ineffect Records. Mm-hmm. Okay, so are you from Queen, you're from Queens
1: originally? Originally from Queens, born and raised there, and then, uh, you know, got into the music like kind of everybody else, and then, you know, you get on a quest for faster music, um, which is really kind of, you know, the underground period that I was really a part of it was like this quest to find the fastest band, you know? Right, right. Um, Whether it was metal, whether it was punk, whether it was hardcore, it didn't matter. You know, it was just like, you know, Metallica would come out with Kill 'Em All and then Slayer would come out and be like, they're faster, you know? And then you'd hear DRI and be like, they're faster. And then, you know, you'd find like crazy bands like Siege and Larm and, you know, stuff like that. It'd be like, Jesus Christ, you know, this is the stuff that your parents like start to say, this isn't even music, you know? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, And, you know, so I was just really you know, deeply, deeply into music, and then I did a fanzine um, when I was in, probably, I guess it was about the beginning of high school, um, with a good friend of mine, and we started to meet a lot of the bands, so we were going to the shows, and CB's matinees, and all that kind of stuff anyway, but you actually were kind of networking, you know, and you didn't necessarily realize it, but that's what was happening. At
0: that young age, you know, you just yeah, see the same you know, faces like, over and over again. Right, and then mm-hmm. somebody
1: needs, you know, help carrying gear into the matinee, and they put you on the list, and, you know, suddenly you're friends with Vinny Stigma. You know, it's like, it's that kind of stuff. And, you know, so I was I was really, really into the music, um, and, and I think one of the important things for me was – the stuff that I didn't like. I was very passionate about the stuff that I really freaking hated. And, you know, there were bands that were popular where I'm like, why the fuck do people like this band? You know? Um, you wanna name some names? It's not even worth naming names. It, it was just kind of like, um, you know, some bands were just sort of getting too much credit. You know, I can't even remember which bands it was, you know, but there were bands that um, I just felt were getting sort of a lot of attention at the time. And I was sort of shocked by how much attention they were getting, you know, and sometimes it was just from magazines and things and they didn't even have a ton of fans. And it was like, why are you paying so much attention to them? Like there's a band kind of right here under your nose that's blows that band away and draws more people and, you know, is, is saying more with their lyrics or this, that and the other thing. And you're not showing them any love. I don't get it, you know. And so that. You know, being that kind of opinionated kid was like a big deal. And I think that's what led to ultimately wanting to have a label, you know, because really, again, there was there were all these bands and hardcore specifically that were just not getting any attention that I thought really deserved it. And, you know, when we started, in effect, uh, a large part of it was to help sort of rescue Agnostic Front from combat records. Um, You know, they were on a metal label. And sure, there were people who, to a degree, gave a shit about them, but ultimately didn't give a shit about them as much as the death metal bands that they were more passionate about and liked. and we were like, this band does so much better than these bands. And you're giving these death metal bands tour support and your, you know, glossy ads and rip and all those silly magazines. And like, why are not you paying attention to a band like this?
0: Yeah, it seems like there was always been from day one, the uh, the illusion that, you know, metal sold more than hardcore and punk or that. You know, it had it was like you know, t-shirts are more expensive, shows are yeah. more expensive. There was this like illusion to that, but well, a lot there was of times-
1: a, there was like an organized industry around that right, stuff. Right. You know, for better or worse, and so the illusion came a little bit from that, like so that you, you know, there were you know publicists for these bands, yeah. and there were you know all kinds of stuff. Again, the, the 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 visual was out there. You know, again, whether it was glossy ads and big metal magazines or whatever it was. There was this perception that, you know, metal was just this big deal. And of course there was very commercial metal on MTV and, you know, people would just say metal and not really understand the difference between like there's a morbid angel and there's a Motley Crew, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so that kind of stuff would happen. But then you had these hardcore bands and, you know, by, by 84, 85, you have this crossover thing happening, you know, and that, was a, a really pivotal moment for metal and hardcore. And, you know, that started to change because those bands started to to play together um, and there were more shows and tours and, and things like that where, you know, the lines were kind of blurred. And, you know, you started to care a little bit less like if they were a long-haired metal band from San Francisco or if there were, you know, skinheads from New York, you know, who played like more of a New York hardcore thing.
0: Yeah, that was like a real interesting point because, you know, I was... high school in like the mid 80s you know 15 16 years old and uh i was weighing into metal and hard rock when i was a kid 13 you know judas priest dio dio era sabbath that kind of stuff awesome you know great stuff and then i started getting into black flags i remember a kid a friend of ours went to california one year and he was a metalhead then he came back after the summer with that Let Them Eat Jelly Beans compilation, right, right, and everyone great became, comp. Yeah, everyone became punks after that. Right, like he got rid of his long hair and a short new wave haircut and everything. Ramon's uh, painting on the back of his jacket, you know. And then I was now I was a punk, even right. though I still really like you know black black Sabbath sure. and all this stuff. But then when I saw Metallica wearing like GBH t-shirts and Misfits right. shirts, right. I was like, this is like an interesting thing. Well, that
1: was a big deal that people don't give a lot of credit to is. Those bands, and, and, you know, they were wearing them, let's say, like, from mid-'83 on. You know, you would see James Hetfield with a GBH or a Discharge shirt or whatever. right? And uh, Kirk would wear a Discharge shirt on stage a lot. And it's interesting because I find that a lot of the, the New York kids got into that British punk hardcore stuff even more than the West Coast stuff. So they were into, you know... GBH and the exploited discharge the Verruckers you know things like that even more so than like the circle jerks and black flag like to this day I'm still not and I respect the shit out of them but I've never been a big black flag dead Kennedys you know guy like the west coast sound it wasn't heavy which was a big difference coming from like having been a metal kid and like you know Sort of like priests, but then loved Iron Maiden. You yeah, know, yeah when right. I feel like Iron Maiden took their crown. You know,
0: well, especially the D, the not the Dio, uh, Paul Diano era of Iron it, Maiden. It,
1: you know, they deny it, but to me, there's punk in that. You know, yeah, I read in that too, era. And, you know, and it has to. Be. Steve Harris hates fucking punk. Yeah, like hates it. You know, he's like, we did this band to like destroy punk, <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know about that, but like, okay, I understand. Maybe if I was in England at the time, I'd get it more, but. You know, I got really into those bands who were big more so than like the Dead. I was very into the Misfits. I will say that. Yeah. But yeah. the Dead Kennedys and like I Jello's voice annoyed the shit out of me. To me, the music was kind of thin and like a little like goofy. You know. A little bit, yeah. The lyrics
0: um, and the and the sort of like surfy guitar stuff. Yeah, and, that and that. it's yeah.
1: like. I understood the merits of it, and, but it, I, I never found myself wanting to listen to it, you know? I would like, I'll put on, you know, hear nothing, see nothing, say nothing any day. I'll put on City Baby Attack by Rats right now, yeah, yeah. you know? But I never really gravitated towards that stuff. Suicidal was probably the one, you know, West Coast band early that I really did like. That first album is just, you know, untouchable for me. Definitely. And then later on, I liked, you know, some of the other Venice stuff. Like, I liked Excel a lot, um, you know, and like Beowulf and, and No Mercy. I, I liked that, well, Mike that was sound. Mike
0: Muir was in No Mercy too, right? He, well, he
1: sang some sang songs song with them, right. or he filled in. It was a It was a very incestuous, like, Venice, yeah. you know, scene there for a while. Um, but that Welcome to Venice comp, like, put a lot of that sound on the map, you know, and you, you got to hear, uh, those bands. And I liked that scene more than a lot of the sort of, you know, uh, Hollywood or, you know, um, out in the burbs, Cali stuff. Your Descendants sort of. Yeah. You know, and I, yeah. I actually liked the poppy punk stuff more, really? you know, okay. like, cause I, I thought that that was their sound. You know, so the descendants, you know, I'm not a huge bad religion guy, but I like them, you know, Pennywise to me is just like, you know, bad religion B, (laughs) you know, it's kind of, why do I need to hear Pennywise? Although I do think they're good, you know, but I don't crave listening to them. You know, I never said, Oh my God, I really want to listen to Pennywise. I always really dug TSOL. I liked TSOL and, too because they were different. Yeah,
0: they were different. You know, and
1: they were almost a little gothy. Yeah, and, yeah, definitely, you know, had, wash away and that you know, kind of stuff. Like that was really good. I thought.
0: I mean, I heard the Misfits before I heard TSOL. <laughs> Me too. So I was thinking, oh, these guys are like kind of referencing that same. Dark, like horror kind of vibe. But,
1: but the Misfits had that East Coast yeah. feel. It was raw and it had more of a rough edge to it, where TSOL was almost polished, you yeah, know? Yeah, true. And comparison. so I didn't like the polished stuff, you know? And again, it came from that, like, that search for faster and more raw, even though I liked a lot of bands that weren't particularly fast and yeah. like a TSOL, but that raw and there was something about again coming from the metal side um the heaviness that these bands were were actually heavy bands and you know the guitar tones and the bass tones and the way the drummer played like all that stuff mattered to me you know and i think as a metal fan you care about production a little bit more and 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 those types of things and um and that's that's just the stuff that like i was really into
0: yeah actually you know, I'm a little embarrassed to say this, but the first AF record I heard was "Cause for Alarm" record. Right, a lot of people. Yeah, and then I went back, you know, to the older material. But like once, when I I remember the same day I heard uh, Chromag's "Age of Quarrel," "Cause for Alarm," and Motorhead "No Remorse." It's
1: a good day. Like
0: we were all hanging out in my <laughs> buddy's room, and we were playing these records. And then I was like, I looked at the record cover for um, for Age of Quarrel. I mean, Age of Quarrel for. Um, Victim calls, of pain. For Oh, alarm. for alarm. Yeah, and I was like, these guys look like you know, like long hair and everything. And then I found, then the deeper I got into the music, the more I discovered that, well, this is actually you know, it's hardcore music. They changed to different <laughs> sort of thing, and that's, but yeah, that that connection to metal and hardcore
1: and punk all sort of felt very much at home in New York City. So it did, and it was interesting because you know to segue a little bit to sick of it all. It's like I feel like. We grew up very similarly when it comes to music, you know. Um, We went from like that, you know, you get introduced to the sort of Sabbaths and the deep purples and the rainbows and that kind of stuff. And then, you know, you hear Judas Priest and then Maiden and you dig deeper into the new wave of British heavy metal and you're reading Kerrang! and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, you hear Motorhead and after motorhead, you're like, I need this, you know, I need more yeah, totally. of this. And then, so, you know, there were a handful of metal bands at that time. Like when motorhead was still kind of in the early days before the thrash metal thing really started to kick off, um, you know uh, you know, basically you had them and then you would hear like a discharge or a GBH, you know, and then you'd hear the Misfits. So around that time, and then, you know, you start to realize that there's this scene going on in New York uh, right under your nose. And, you know, there's an agnostic front. and there's a Murphy's Law. And a little later, the Cro-Mags, like a couple of years later. and But you had bands like Cause for Alarm, and you had bands like The Mob. And you had, you know, Reagan off. youth, you know? Yeah. Uh, and and these were the bands that, that really formed the sound of New York, you know, like that New York hardcore sound that people talk about, right. like it was those bands, you know, and I always refer to, uh, AF Murphy's law, Cro-Mags. That's the big three of New York hardcore, you know, cause when I first started coming to shows again, the Cro-Mags hadn't really started yet. They were about a year or two in the making before recording anyway. Yeah. Um, you know, those were the bands like those are the bands. Everyone would come to see those are the bands. Everybody wanted to dress like those were the bands like that established the attitude of the scene in New York. And so again, to, to go to sick of it all, you know, they grew up in the same, you know, direction, you know, so they heard those same bands. They came from that same new wave of British heavy metal motorhead. Holy shit. You know, having heard black Sabbath already, of oh, course, yeah. um, and then looking for that, like, you know, the darker, harder, faster stuff. And then, you know, some of us went over the edge with that shit. Like, just, you know, <laughs> like, like really fast and like just yeah. indecipherable almost. Like Danny yeah, you know? Right, right. And like, you know, it was <laughs> yeah. like a great friend of mine. And he turned me yeah. on to so many bands. Yeah, Danny was actually one of my guests, like, uh, I think episode three or four or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. And so, you know, he and I... Like starting probably about 84, 85, we were hanging out a lot and we would just demos and we would just go to one, one of the other person's house and just listen to demos and like, holy shit, this is faster than this. And this is heavier than this. And, you know, it was almost like a a game, you know, where it was like, did you hear the blah, blah, blah demo? You know, and it's like, it's faster than siege or it's more you know it's more this than large than larm or you know or or any of the like you know the neos or any of these really fast bands and you know and then you know i'd meet Pete and Lou later and find out like same exact music. Like they like the same stuff. We'd be at the same shows, you know, before we knew each other. And then later when we knew each other, we were excited about going to the same shows. It's funny how that
0: works out sometimes where you can meet someone for the first time. And then you, you see that they're into like almost the same exact bands and types of things. It's almost, it almost makes me think that we're in like this like video game where everyone's like given these attributes and then suddenly they meet each
1: other it's so true and and uh, you know i told them you know i, I was like i don't know if you're going to remember this but i was like i used to see you guys on the subway you know going to shows like when they all had long hair like Armon had hair like down to his waist with like a like a venom patch on the back of his jacket you know and we took the same train, whether it was to go to a rich show or go to a Seabees matinee or an Irving Plaza show, or whatever it was, um, thankfully i didn't you know i always had a ride to Lamore. i only took the train there once because that could be a rough ride out there it's a rougher ride home um (laughs) so basically i was like yeah i used to see you guys like you'd be like in a pack of like six seven people and it would be basically you know pete lou armand craig you know rob from rest in pieces um there was this girl named may that was always with them um couple other people you know give or take and every once in a while i'd see them on the on the train they're like how come you never came and said anything to us i was like well i was by myself because i was meeting people at the show and it just seemed weird you know so i didn't say anything to you but i saw you all the time on the train i was like i know where they're going you know
0: yeah it's pretty especially back then yeah
1: and then later on we'd be like you know be like hey uh did you go to that show? I was like, yeah, I saw you on the subway on the way to that show. <laughs> you know? So it was, uh, you know, it was that kind of upbringing. And then finding out like whether it was at the same time or whatever, that there were people doing exactly the same thing you were doing a- around the same bands, you know, buying the same records, going to the same shows, buying the same t-shirt at Bleaker Bob's, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah. So starting the record label, like, how did you know you and Steve Martin
1: started that? Is that yeah. Correct? So, Steve came in a couple of minutes after I did. Um, I was a, my first proper job in the music business was a salesperson um, for what was called Important Records at the time, which is now Red, which is actually sort of now The Orchard. Um, and uh, they were the biggest independent um, distribution for records in the country and they were based in Hollis, Queens. I was in Queens village. So like barely 10 minutes away. Um, and actually it was Danny Loker and the guys in nuclear assault who introduced me to the people who were running that place. And um, I wound up getting a job there as a salesman uh, when I was 18 years old. And again, it was great. I lived 10 minutes away. I was like going to sell records. I was like, this is amazing. So You know, I was there for a while. I wasn't the best salesman in the world, but it was a great foot in the door. And I learned a ton by being a salesperson there. And again, what I was talking about earlier about the like, how come, you know, these bands are getting more attention than these bands, that kind of thing. I started to notice that, you know, combat was pushing like bands that I was aware of, like just from the underground. And I'm like, why are you paying attention to that shit? Nobody's going to buy that, you know, things like that. And then, you know, again, started to realize that AF was kind of getting the shit end of the stick. And then I realized that also these other bands were starting to, like, come up and become a factor. And I thought that they could be, you know, popular bands and do well with this crossover audience that was now out there, especially. Um so I started to talk to the head of purchasing. Um, his name is Alan Becker. He's actually still at the company. Oh, really? A billion years later. Really good guy. Job security. Big time. <laughs> and great guy. And, uh, and, you know, I started, like, bitching and whining to him about, like, what I was seeing, you know? And, you know, as the bitching and whining <laughs> continued, it sort of became a, like, why don't we start, like, another imprint over there and, like, do something else and, like, really cater to this, You know, whether it be hardcore or just the bands that don't fit in that we think are great or whatever, and you can't just put like a metal label on them or whatever. And so, you know, it was it was a well received idea. And so we decided that we were going to start a label and kind of focus on hardcore, and that we would uh, launch the label with Agnostic Front. So we would take them off of um, Combat. And we would put them on what became in effect, Records. And, you know, ultimately, uh, the record, the the Live at CBGB's record, which was the first one we did with them, was kind of already a a plan. That was already something they were going to do. So we're like, what a great way to launch the label with something like that. But at the same time, we're like, well, we need to prove that we're serious. Like, so it can't just be one record and then like you know, eight years later, we come out with another, <laughs> yeah. uh, some other thing, you know? So we realized that, you know, important was distributing roar. And, um, we reached out to roar and because hardcore had started to become big enough where you could put music out on CDs. Can you imagine that? Like, you know, it was only just getting to that point. It's like 87 ish, you know? Right. Right. And, um, you know, we're like, let's talk to roar and see if we could do the bad brains roar cassette on CD for the first time. So we got that deal done. Now, I just want to stop for one second. Yeah. Here, and I want to underscore the
0: importance of the bad brains to New York hardcore. Oh
1: Jesus. They created New York hardcore without even knowing it. Yeah. The reason that all the New York bands became bands is because the bad brains moved to New York and they all saw them and were like, Jesus Christ, like everything just changed, you know? Um, And they were, you know, sort of the sound of it without knowing that that's what they were going to create, that they were going to create this whole new scene in New York, um, taking a little bit of what they brought with them from D.C., obviously. But they were such a unique band, you know, anyway, um, you know, mixing up reggae and and punk and, And you know, very sped up jazz chops. Right. And they could just play uh, because they came from being, you know, like jazz fusion guys. Incredible players. And then you have this guy, HR, you know, fronting the thing, who's the greatest, you know, front man of all time. And, you know, um, and so when they moved to New York and they would play like an A7 or, you know, like the uh, 171A or whatever, like the people that saw them were the Cro-Mags and Murphy's Law, whether those bands existed yet or not, you know, and AF, and they were all just like, Jesus, we have to start bands, you know? And so then the New York guys really threw the New York juice on it, you know, and and really made it sound like New York. Because at the time the Bad Brains were playing
0: in New York City, it was pre-hardcore, and it was more still like sort of in, the, in like a punk vibe, right? Yeah. yeah.
1: When it first started. When it first yeah. started. That was right. the sort of 79, 80. Yeah. But then a little bit later, you know, by certainly by 81, they were a friggin' hardcore band like they were just blasting away you know at a mile a minute and uh and just killing and they were just better than every other band that's just a fact and you know you were they were untouchable like you could not you should not play after them (laughs) you know it's you're just not you're not going to survive that that well you know and but yeah those bands became bands because of the Bad Brains and, you know, them leaving DC and moving here to, you know, because there were more places to play. And, you know, so there was now this scene and this community forming, you know, downtown and, uh, and it was a very interesting time. So, so yeah, we started, we started this label, obviously this is a good few years later, but, it was the next wave, you know, and agnostic front were sort of like the second wave of hardcore, let's say, uh, Murphy's law, cro that, that whole thing. And then you had these bands that were starting to really make noise, sick of it all raw deal underdog, like those, that level of band, like those bands were starting to matter. And, you know, they weren't just playing New York. They're playing the East coast, you know, they had demos circulating, um, You know, things like that. And then, uh, you know, Sick of It All went and did the 7-inch with uh, Revelation. Right. And so Revelation was kind of really, you know, establishing themselves with straight-edge bands mostly. Um, A lot of people thought Sick of It All was a straight-edge band because they were on Revelation. Um, Which, you know, they almost were, really. But, you know, they didn't preach that. and They didn't, you know, that wasn't a part of their agenda or anything. Um, And so, you know, that 7-inch came out. And now a lot more people know about them, you know? And so, you know, you'd get the, you know, let's backtrack. Don't forget they were on two rev comps before their, their oh, Seven right, Inch. right, right, okay. They were on the, the, you know, the Together Seven Inch. Okay. And uh, they were on the, the album that came out, you know, um, with the, the live photo from the Anthrax on it. Um, not the band Anthrax, but the, yeah, the Connecticut, the uh, Connecticut Club, club yep. um, the second version of that club. And uh, they're on that comp and so they started to get something out of that and their demo and then they put out their seven inch and so now People are asking about them, you know, they're not just like forcing themselves and working themselves towards an audience like And that's people. an important
0: step in a band's sort of uh, evolution is when you know, you're, tr- you're almost forcing yourself, you know telling people about your band like politicking to get yourself on these bills and that moment when the promoters actually ask for you—well, that's the thing because the record
1: is. makes you tangible for whatever yeah. reason. You know, I mean, I know why, but like, you know, the record makes you tangible, and so you know, the Boston promoter and the Rhode Island promoter and the DC promoter, yeah. and they're all like, "Hey, what about this band? Sick of it all? Yep. People seem to like them." You know, and then you get to a place like a Boston or whatever, and now you can sell shirts. You know, yeah, and totally. so pay for gas. you know, people <laughs> people have your shirts too and are wearing some. Wearing them to other people's shows, you know. So slowly but surely, you know, you've got a presence now in these other towns, and so now you're not just a New York, New Jersey band. Or, you know, between you know, sort of City Gardens and Seabees and you know, the once in a while Super Bowls, um, you know, you can play in a whole bunch of other places and actually, you know, create a fan base. And they did that, you know, and so you know, th- they were the first band um after our our launch of in effect that i actually signed you know um that i was like we should we got to work with that band you know they were impossible to ignore certainly in this city um but you knew that uh they were a factor elsewhere now but you also knew how fucking good they were like they were just a steamroller band and uh you know, from a lyrical point of view, they were very no frills, you know, like there was no, you know, uh, pretense to them whatsoever. You know, there was no uniform that they wore, you know, like a lot of other bands uh, of of that period, you know, the the straight edge uniform and the champion, you know, sweatshirt and the, the, you know, the Air Jordans and whatever, they just weren't those guys. They were just this pissed off band. And also, They played really fast, you know, which was something that I loved about them because, you know, they came as a combination of like Rest in Pieces and NYC Mayhem straight ahead, you know, and, you know, NYC Mayhem was like New York's real thrash band, you know, Um, like they were the band that followed in the footsteps of DRI and, you know, that kind of stuff, the early DRI stuff and, you know, really like Um, we used to call it jerky thrash you know because it was just the time changes and stuff was really crazy and you know so they had that sound and it was a sound that I already liked from the bands that they came from and then they started to incorporate it into their own material and I thought they were fucking great I mean I saw their first show and you know you wouldn't have seen their first show and be like wow they're great (laughs) you know but you thought Pete and Lou were great you know but they had a drummer who like didn't give a shit, you know, uh, that much about the band and, you know, bass player didn't give it that, that much of a shit about the band. And the drummer was like an Asian white power skin. (laughs) Oh geez. Yeah. I remember that from the interview with Dave guys. Um, so I was like, this is the weirdest thing I've ever seen. (laughs) And you know, they're always like, did his parents ever know what his, he was into, you know? And, uh, you know, but they got better fast, you know, and they got really good quickly. And, um, they were just this force to me, and so we brought them on to, uh, to Ineffect, and uh, and I'm glad that we got to work with them and put out that first album and everything. And you know, I think uh, I think we did a good job with them. And I mean, listen, it's thirty almost thirty three years later, and they're still doing it. You know.
0: Now, when they signed to Ineffect Records, <laughs> there was this uh, illusion, this pretense that they were somehow. Getting signed to some, or selling their souls to some major label man. Yeah, company, right? yeah.
1: <laughs> well, there's, there was that debate. Yeah. Um, but listen, when when they signed with us, we were a completely independent company. Um, the the label itself was run by myself and a member of Agnostic Front. Yeah. You know, not corporate. Um, so, you know, later on, uh, you know, there were some people who took offense to the way that we operated and the way that the band operated, which I thought was insane. Um, and you know, for the most part, it was these kids trying to justify this new scene that was going on down at ABC no Rio. And, you know, so while I understand it to a degree, I don't feel like they made a great case on their own merits. I think they scapegoated in effect and sick of it all. And, the points that they were making about why they had an issue with us were just stupid. Um, and I didn't agree with it. And, you know, obviously I was I was trying not to be like personally offended, you know, by it. Yeah, but
0: it's hard to, you know, at that age, you know. Yeah, I mean, I know, felt like I was young. a
1: kid and these guys yeah. are like looking in our pockets and, yeah. you know, they're criticizing everything we're doing. And again, we knew full well that it was to justify their own thing, mm-hmm. which again is fine. But, like, you pick the wrong people, you know?
0: Yeah, I mean, maybe now, I think, looking back, there's probably a different uh, perspective on that. You know what I
1: mean? <laughs> yeah, just, I, had, you, know, everyone's I think so. crazy, you know. I mean, one of, the, one of the major issues was that, you know, again, we're working with an independent record distributor. It's the late 80s. You know, people in the real world don't give a shit about hardcore. Right. They don't give a shit about New York hardcore. They don't give a shit about hardcore, period. And so... Our goal within effect was we wanted as many kids as possible to hear this music, you know, because we saw what these bands could do in one region of the country. So why shouldn't the kid in Nebraska and Iowa and, 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 you know, Colorado, wherever, you know, why shouldn't those kids have access to this too? And we were spoiled in New York. We had some records and bleaker bobs and like all these places that you could buy hardcore records and stuff, you know, in these other parts of the country, that wasn't the case. You know, there's a lot of mail order stuff going on and, you know, it shows up three months later, scratched, broken, whatever. Um, Or if at all, I remember. If at all, because, you know, they couldn't keep up with like, you know, orders and it was a different game, you know? Yeah. And, and so. We had the ability to, you know, get our records and record chains and things like that. And a lot of these kids in other parts of the country, that's how they got these records. And so, you know, going through the S section and whatever record chain in a mall. And so these ABC No Rio kids would like bitch about that. And it's like, you're fucking idiots. And then we had an issue because obviously there was a lot of fucks and shits on the sick of it all album. And we were like, look, if we put this all over the lyric sheet, like nobody's going to carry this record except like indie stores. And if that's your goal, cool, you know, but I think we all had the conversation that that's not the goal. You know, we want anybody to get this record. Right. So we said, why don't we do this? You have the song and justice system on the album. There's no cursing in it. Let's put that on the lyric sheet, you know, as the only song on the lyric sheet, but we'll send anybody who wants the lyrics, we'll send them a lyric sheet for free. Like we'll mail it to your house, you know, and that's our compromise because then we'll get over on these stores. Like they won't even know that they've got an album. Truly, they're not going
0: to listen to the record. No, exactly. Like they're not
1: going to know the album's fuck shit, you know, all over the place. But they don't have to read it on the lyric sheet. A parent doesn't have to find it in their kid's bedroom, read it, and go complain. You know, and then these records would get pulled in a second. You know, we would have no shot. Like we weren't, you know, CBS Records who had Michael Jackson and this that and the other thing, and nobody would dare pull their records. You know. But we would get destroyed, you yeah, know. Yeah. It would be the end of everything.
0: It'd be a lot. Li- you'd be a liability in there, or a hundred percent, a hundred
1: percent, and we'd be putting them at risk. You that's know, that's right. That's correct. And yeah. they're, you know, they don't care. They only want what sells, you know, and they're more than happy to double stock their shelves with major artists and have any hardcore bands in their stores, you know. And and people didn't understand that. So, you know, because of Sick of It All's early you know, success and popularity, they had these kinds of problems, you know, and they had to, you know, be somebody who would address them, you know, and, and again, like people like, well, combat had, you know, this, that, and the other thing, but it's like, they sold a lot in indie stores. And then again, as we said before, there was this sort of industry around metal And somehow it made it more palatable to these retailers, you know, which makes no sense because they're talking about, you know, Satan and, (laughs) you know, and all that. And like, you know, basically, you know, sick of talking about social issues and, you know, that kind of stuff. So, you know, we had a lot of barriers to, to get around or through or over or whatever, um, but it was important to us, so we well, did it.
0: One of the things I look at is, like, you know, people always get Black Flag, like, the credit for establishing the touring routes throughout the country. And I always like to look at that Sick of It All record as, like, what put punk and hardcore,
1: give it, gave it the channel into mainstream sort of markets. You know what I mean? Well, I think what happened was by the time that they were going to do, like, their first, you know, touring. Yeah they were on more of a like traditional tour routing in a more traditional tour routing world right whereas black flag You know, those early punk and hardcore tours, Mm -hmm. like every third show is canceled. You know, it's in a VFW hall. So it's not like a promoter that does a lot of other shows. So everything about it's kind of sketchy. So you got to respect them big time for like surviving that stuff, you know, and blazing the trail, you know, but sick of it all got to jump onto something that was kind of already working, you know, but not for a band like them. You know, and then they got to coattail onto something that was already kind of in motion. So, you know, people forget, I think, that, you know, after their headlining run when the first album came out, the first tour they did was with Exodus. Yeah. You know, and they did an East Coast run with Exodus. And that was a very, very different thing for them. But it was a very established, like, all the venues you'd heard about, like, sure, you know, yeah, yeah. And, and all that stuff. And, you know, Exodus was a big band at this point. You know, it's their third album. And, you know, I talked to Gary Holt the other day about that tour. We were talking about it. Um, I interviewed him for the book. Oh, nice. And so he was. He recalled that tour. And he was just like, you know, for us, we we just knew... That there was this thing going on in New York like we didn't know tons of the bands they said they kind of knew about leeway, you know well, yeah Lee was um, very metal yeah and and, and but they're like we didn't realize the strength of that movement, you know so they're like he's like sick of it all came on the road with us there and they were just killing you know and then you talk to sick of it all and they're like we were killing, but we had to really win those kids over. Like, at the beginning of the show, it was sort of like, you know, the staring at us for a couple of songs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then, a, you know, a couple of kids would start dancing or whatever. And then by the end of the show, it was going great, you know? But they're like, we had to work really hard on those shows. And and it was probably a city-by-city city grind, too. Because, Big time.
0: You know, remember... You started all over again the next day. Yeah, because there's no internet. There's no no, no. message boards about how this band The rocks. band's
1: in front of you, and that's it. Yeah, And then what would happen would be like... Gary would wear like their shirt on stage when Exodus played and he like would, would justify their, their existence. And, you know, well, that's a big statement really. If you think
0: about it, it's like we were talking about earlier with like James Hetfield, wearing the It's t-shirt. It all comes full
1: circle back to that kind of one-on-one. Sepultura were wearing sick of it all shirts. You know, you had a couple of these metal bands, you know, that were, that were really into them and like sick of it all. uh, Sepultura found that about sick of it all while they were in Brazil you know? So they were fans before they really started coming over here, you know? And, uh, but they were really big fans. They were big New York hardcore, like aficionados, like they were into AF and, and sick of it all and all that stuff, like before they ever came here. And so, you know, it started to become this one big thing. And that was the thing that Gary Holt said, he's like, we just didn't care. Like it didn't, long hair skinheads it didn't matter like it was about the music and that's it you know and and the attitude like that you were out here to kill an audience you know and that you had something to offer and you were going for it you know and that's all anybody cared about and so sick of it all did really well on that tour and then you noticed that like the metal establishment started to like hmm sick of it all you know and then they went out and did the whole country with dri um which at the time you know they had really crossed over and were were for all intents and purposes a metal band yeah it was after Um, that crossover it was it was it was the next album thrash zone or whatever it's like but whatever Uh, but you know (laughs) we all grew up loving dri so we were like shit we're gonna do the dri tour you know and those guys were the same like where they were just like we're gonna go and do the whole country with dri they got 50 bucks a night on that tour
0: Fifty dollars a night. Even in nineteen eighty eight or eighty seven, that fifty dollars is still not a
1: lot of money. No, fifty bucks (laughs) was fifty bucks. So that was the like, thank God we're selling merchandise. Yeah. You know? Totally. Because but then by the time they did that tour, they their their name was out there enough that they would show up to those shows and there'd be sick of it all fans there. Not necessarily tons, but if there were thirty or forty of them, let's say, it would get the crowd moving. You know, and that 30 or 40 turned, you know, into three, 400, you know, uh, by the end of the show of people who liked them and cared and started buying merch, you know? So that, that was a pivotal movement for them because that was like the right band to go out with at the right time. And, uh, and that worked, you know, really, really well. And, you know, then later they did that new Titans on the block tour with Sepultura who loved them. Yeah. Um specifically asked for them, you know, and uh, Sacred Reich and Napalm Death. And they shared a bus with Napalm Death. And they're like, there was a real kinship with them because they liked the same music and they had the same kind of attitude and yeah, and yeah. stuff. And they said, we were cool with everybody. They're like, we loved, you know, those guys. Um, but they're like, there was a riot at like every one of the shows on that tour for one reason or another. Oh yeah,
0: it's, you know...
1: That, the tour started in Allentown. How about yeah, that?
0: Yeah, I mean, we all, Allentown is police back then. Notoriously was like a uh, a stronghold of like certain white nationalist activity. Hardly and, certain.
1: It was like almost the majority. Yeah, it was like, like some a, of the shows were the majority. Yeah, it was, and they said that show was one of them. And they're like, you know, they're spitting at us and they're, you know, calling us like. Jew lovers and nigger lovers and stuff and we're like, what the fuck is going on? And yeah. they're like, we had played small shows in like Bethlehem, Pennsylvania yep. and Allentown. So we knew that this was here. There's and an element there. They're yeah. like, but it wasn't like this, like hundreds of them at one show. And they're like, and it happened at this show. And they're like, it just turned into a brawl. And so, you know, they're like, all four of us were like fighting, like stopping the show. Like the whole thing, Pete's beating people with his guitar, like all this stuff. And then the road manager for Sepultura, who they said was a very much a, like a rock tour manager. Yeah. Probably, was like, yeah. you guys can't do that. I don't care what anybody says about, you know, you guys or whatever. And they're just like, we're not going to take that shit. You know, like, and so, he was like trying to get them thrown off the tour after oh, one man. show and then Igor and Max they're like are you guys okay like what happened and they're like yeah your tour manager wants to throw us off the tour they're like yeah that's not fucking happening wow. you know and so they had to be saved you know <laughs> oh, like the first show you wow know? and then they said the last show was at in the Pacific Northwest somewhere ended with another run I was gonna
0: say you go for you started <laughs> in, <laughs> in Allentown and then the Pacific especially in the late 80s is also a stronghold Nazi, Nazi stronghold,
1: stronghold. <laughs> And, and, you know, and they all loved hardcore, you know, of course. And, and so, uh, you know, just angry, sick of it all comes to town and they're like, we got to go. And, and they just said it was just like a nightmare, you know, because, you know, they said sometimes the trouble was after the whole show ended or whatever, but they're like, we just wanted to play the show. They're like, it was costing us money to be on the road. (laughs) Like we want to play our show. Yeah, totally. Um, you know, they're like, we're far from home. Like we got to get this set in, you know? Um. But yeah, so there was they just did sort of everything right and they were willing to take chances and they were willing to put in that work. But most importantly is they were just friggin' crushing. You know, they got on stage and they just killed, you know, and it was every night and they were different to a lot of these kids, you know, they hadn't seen anything like that before. Um, that generation, you know, so maybe some of those kids had seen agnostic front across the country or, or whatever, you know, but they hadn't seen this like pure new breed hardcore band from New York, just throwing down in front of them and just like, you know, being a friggin' tornado in the room, you know? Now, after
0: this is when they, they actually signed, with was East West for the... Well, stress. they did one
1: more record, right? Well, okay. So there was no more in effect after a while. Okay. We were around for about five years. And then, so the second album, Just Look Around, came out on Relativity proper, which was like the parent company of the labels. Uh, still with Important, but the, the parent company was Relativity because Sony bought the whole company, fired a whole bunch of the staff, myself included, and um, and and started dropping most of the bands. So I guess the timing was such that just look around was either in progress or done or whatever. So they're like, we'll just put it out, but they paid no attention to it. So the company released it. It came out sort of very quietly. Um, and, you know, they didn't get to take the next step that they should have been able to take <coughs> with that album. Cause it's a really strong album. Yeah, definitely. Definitely and uh you know it kind of went quietly but then after that um they were so unhappy that they said can you guys just drop us like you don't want us yeah you don't treat us like you want us so let us not be here and um they they let them go and that's when the east west thing happened now how did how do you
0: are you privy to the information as to how they even found out about them like a wise
1: i don't know exactly how east west found out about sick of it all specifically but if you look at that period, you know, major labels started to invest a little bit in hardcore or what they thought was hardcore, right? So you had Quicksand went over to Island and you had Orange Nine Millimeter got signed and Into Another got signed to Hollywood. And so Sick of It All got signed to East West, you know. So some of the people that were like our friends or kind of grew up in the scene or, you know, were somehow attached to it. They had jobs as A&R people in these labels now, you know, and they were bringing bands like this into the label. And certainly I was skeptical, generally speaking, about that whole idea because I just thought, these bands would be such small fish in these giant ponds. Like how could it ever work? Right. And major labels are about radio and video play. That's what they're about. They are to this day. That's what they were about then. That's it. It's commercial, commercial, commercial. And these bands were never really going to be that commercial as much as they tried. Like quicksand was the closest I would say, but, You know, they weren't Nirvana. You know, they you know they came out at really kind of the same time. Yeah, ninety one was Nirvana. Never mind. You know, so it's it was that same period, right? The grunge thing, and you know, so but sick of it all was still sick of it all. Yeah, you know, and you know, you hear scratch the surface and I was really pleasantly surprised, you know, cause they didn't change a bit.
0: No, that was, that's one of their hardest albums in my opinion.
1: I love the production. I don't know how they got Billy Anderson. Like, I don't even know why he was the producer on that album. Cause they did the first two with Tom Soares and he, right. he did a really good job. And you know, like if you look at his resume, like he did a lot of stoner rock bands yeah, and Roses, like uh, things like you know, that, sleep and, yeah. you know, stuff like that. And I'm like, Okay, like, there's got to be a reason, you know? And, um, you know, I wasn't thinking about it that much. It was just like, I want to hear a new Sick of It All record. I'm a fan. I want to hear the next album. And then I heard it, and I was like, holy shit, this album's a banger, you know? And I loved the production.
0: Yeah, there's not a bad-sounded song on that whole record. No,
1: really. and they they sound great. The guitar tone is great. Lou sounds great. You know, Armand's great. Craig's great. I mean, it just, you know, they put out an incredible album on a major label. But I was sort of like... But what's that going to mean? You know, just is it, are they going to get bigger? They actually did get a little bigger. Um, And, and you know, but w- what will this really do for them, you know? And does it matter, you know? But all I know is ultimately they just made a great album.
0: Yeah, but I, I mean, from my perspective, I feel like that record really, like, you know, they weren't. Like just, they were definitely a hardcore band. Yeah. But that's when like, they toured with like Helmet, I think. or something Yeah, they like started,
1: they had always taken chances with their yeah, touring. Yeah. But yeah, they did that kind of stuff where they did Helmet dates. I think, I think around that time is when they did some, the run with the Beastie Boys, right? Yeah. When they were called Quasar for the tour. Mm-hmm. And they were in New York, I guess they were alleyway crew. I don't know if they played a Sick of It All or alleyway crew. That I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, but, um, you know, so they, they started to, you know, become uh, visible to like the the alternative music scene at large. Let's say because that
0: was like a very big market in the '90s was like alternative rock. What was the I first
1: year a Lollapalooza, yeah, Lollapalooza, right? Lollapalooza, and yep. you know, which which you know, if you look back at it, it was pretty fucking cool. You know, at the time, it was a I didn't great think idea. So, but now I think it is actually. You know, when you, know. you look back at like that bill, yeah. You know, of like Susie and the Banshees and Nine Inch Rollins Nails Band. and Rollins and Living Color and you know, like it was a it was a cool yeah, Jane's Addiction, Bill yeah. Jane's, right? And so that was the world that you were living in, and so more kids got exposed to like. Left field music, you know, and some of it was very successful. Nirvana, yeah, you know, Nirvana, yeah. Pearl Jam, they were on that tour too. Um, you know, and uh, and 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 bands of that ilk, you know, and you know, bands, I think people thought at least at the labels that bands like you know, Into Another and Quicksand and and, and Orange Nine were like kind of a part of that, you know, and or they wanted them to be a part of that. Um, and sick of it all i think they they thought something similar about them but to me they were the real sore thumb in that major label hardcore exploration period because they what were they how were they going to change they were not going to change um and you better have known that going in like i don't know what you thought kind of album they were going to make but they made a great sick of it all album is what they made and uh I was really proud of them for that album. I thought that was such a great album. And, you know, some of my favorite songs of theirs are on that album.
0: Yeah, me too, actually. You know? What, what was, are some so, of your favorite tracks? Well, I was on
1: going it. through, like, the track listing. And so. You know, uh, obviously, step down is, you know, is just a freaking anthem. That the title track, scratch the surface, is amazing. Um, but I also like no cure. Like, what hardcore band was addressing the AIDS crisis? Not that era. You no. know what I mean? Nobody yeah. was doing that from lyrically. Um, consume. I was going to um, say, consume is probably my favorite. And track. maladjusted, I love also. Yeah. Um, but you know. But there was a lot of groove on that album. They always had that. And there was more of it on the second album than there was on the first. But this one had the groove. And in talking to them, I was trying to figure out like where did the groove of that band come from, the way that they incorporate it into their sound. And they said, look, you know, and it was similar to myself. Like we liked music and when we would hang out in the alleyway, when we were teenagers or whatever, you know, we would have a boom box and like one second we could be playing negative approach. And the next minute we could have been playing boogie down productions, you know, hence the KRS one, you know, trying to get him on the first album, yeah. you know, they're like, we were fans, you know? And so we were like, how could we put that groove into our hardcore, you know? Um, but still have it be like crushing and heavy and, you know, and transition into something fast even or whatever. And so, you know, the groove comes from New York, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, you hear a lot of these purist kids like, oh, fucking hip hop and hardcore, I hate that. And it's like, well, you probably aren't from New York because you can't ignore it. Like if you were a kid in the 80s in New York and you liked underground music, the stuff just came together. I mean, if you look at the history of, you know, hip-hop and punk together with Blondie, with Rapture and, you know, Fab Five Freddy going downtown and Blondie going uptown and, you know, all that kind of stuff, I mean... It was inevitable, you know, that that stuff would come together somehow. And there's some people that did it in a really silly, you know, like it was more about the fashion and the clothes, and right. the, the attitude. And there was some people who made great music with it, you know, and I'm not talking about rap rock. You no, know? but like
0: you would say a legitimate form of music, like, like hardcore Cigarette dolls specifically. Madball. Madball. Incorporates exactly, hip hop into yeah. it.
1: But you wouldn't necessarily know it you know it's just a feel it's a feel and it's an attitude and and you know so if you were in the middle of the country you may think that this is real weird you know um but if you were from here or you know the general vicinity of new york you understood it because when you went to the shows you felt that attitude you know of new york you know street level new york you know hip-hop underground hardcore you know various other forms of music you know it all came together and so it came together in hardcore too and again there were some people that did some dumb shit with it but there are plenty of people who made it work for them and i think sick of it all is one of those bands because it's so like it's so you know undercover in a way like they're not forcing it at you at all
0: no they like flawlessly transition from like a like a thrashy part into right. like a, a like a breakdown that's right like a hip-hop part you know that's right like a, consume a, is like yeah, whole that's why I brought that whole song
1: is you know yeah. is that feel
0: you know and there's a lot of that The beginning is the intros to a lot of the songs have this sound like beast. a lot of bass lot on of that bass. album yeah it's a lot of, bass a lot of Craig
1: that. you know yep. and 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 Craig's a guy who was not a hip-hop guy you know but he was definitely like a groove guy and uh, uh you know you know obviously as a bass player which she's always been um you know it, it's just natural but there's a good few songs on scratch the surface that start with bass oh a lot bass of yeah stuff. that's
0: that's a, like some of the some of the like i said that's what to me differentiates the album
1: starts no the album starts with a hi-hat yeah it starts with a hi-hat on no cure but i think uh, the second song starts with bass consume starts with bass you know.
0: you know, and something I always thought was interesting, too, is, uh, you know, you were mentioning that they got along really well with Napalm Death. And Napalm Death, at some point in their career, there's some, like, hip-hop breakdown-y type yeah. of parts of their of their
1: grind, death grind stuff, too. You know? Well, they were very influenced by New York anyway. Yeah. Like, they, you know, uh, they... Ultimately, I mean, again, they called it grindcore over in the UK. Like here, you know, they were like metallic crust punks in a way. Like it was, you know, a different thing. And so when they first started coming over, you know, um, and they would be in New York or a place like this and they would meet bands here and things like that, sick of it all being one of them, um, you know, it rubbed off on them a little bit, you know, because they went from being just ultra fast crazy like you know super speed stuff and then suddenly they started to like get slower and heavier you know and they always had like some of the crazy thrash stuff going on but you know they definitely uh started to incorporate some different flavors and you know and it was definitely a new york thing that they threw in there a little bit
0: Yeah, the drumming on some of their later, like mid, mid to later records, I was when Mick wasn't the drummer anymore. Exactly, there was
1: like some of this like behind the beat stuff going on, which
0: I was like, yeah, this is like definitely. Yeah, and then
1: they went on tour with Sick of It All and watched them play like thirty times in a row. Yeah, you know, and so it was after that, and yeah, so it's interesting like how that stuff works, you know, Um, and uh, you know these the way that these these vibes and these sounds like transfer you know to different regions and you know the sound of a region of the country you know like that there was a new york hardcore sound and there was that grindcore that british grindcore sound and then you had the venice sound and you had the the huntington beach sound and the hollywood sound and you know all that stuff and you know then you have a detroit sound and you know people don't talk about that enough because you know while we were talking about the, the influence of the bad brains, not enough people talk about the influence of negative approach because, you know, listen to AF. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> you know? Yep. Um, and then, you know, Lou, it was either Lou or Pete who said to me that like when they first heard, you know, negative approach, like shortly after hearing Motorhead for the first time, when they were like, Jesus Christ, you know, like that changed them again, you know? And that had a big part in the shaping of the sound in new york well yeah
0: breakdown covers uh negative approach yep. ready to fight yeah you know, it's like well look at
1: the song titles on af and madball records yeah. right it's like you know they're they're straight from it um but uh in a good way and but i love that sound that very primal you know floor tom yep. you know hardcore Brandon's vocals, oh, his vocals like, and yeah. just you know stage presence like you're terrified when you saw him i just saw him
0: play uh last (laughs) late last year um this band i played we we were on a festival with negative approach with tombs with tombs yeah yeah. and and it was in pontiac michigan so kind of like like a hometown kind of hometown yeah and it was like i mean it's not the original none of the i don't know it's it's john brandon and some of the guys kind of all that matters but yeah yeah it's (laughs) easy action guys right um, right right which is another another great band yeah i like them too but they I'd, I've seen negative approach in twice
1: like in the, in the more recent years and yeah. it's still sick
0: man. It's murder it's so good like it's
1: so good and they're still exactly what you want from them totally. you know yeah. like if you want a dose of negative approach like definitely go you're gonna get oh, yeah. it you know yeah. but, and, that, and, but it's another band that was a big piece of the, all the, the sound of all this stuff we're talking about you know so you were hinting at a is there, you have a new book coming out? Because you've been doing a lot of writing in the last few yeah, years. Yeah, you know, one of the great authors of our time, right? <laughs> um, so, yeah, I have got I have three books coming out in 2019. Three, three books in 2019. Yeah, so one okay. is coming out in May. It's the second edition of a book I did last year called Hip Hop Alphabet okay. um, that I do with my friend uh, Caves from Lords of Brooklyn, who is a graffiti writer. And so he does the illustrations and I do the rhymes and it's basically 26 pages of like your favorite you know rap artists and like elements of the culture breaking and DJing and all that kind of stuff uh with like a graffiti illustration and a rhyme about that artist or that art form. And so we did a first one and it sold out everywhere. We had a lot of success with it. Um called Hip Hop Alphabet and now we're doing Hip Hop Alphabet 2 that comes out in May. It's like you could already pre-sale. It's already up for pre-sale on Amazon. Um so we're doing that and then there's going to be a um Paperback of the HR book Finding okay. Joseph I um, So we did a new chapter Which picks up um, From where His health stuff Left off So um, This covers His recovery From brain surgery And also the reforming With the band And playing those shows Last year or two years ago um, With Bad Brains And just sort of The like What's what's going on with him And just the chapter Is fascinating Because So much has happened To him in the last few years It's so fast moving Um, that it's really worth like getting the new information. So that's coming out probably in the early summer. And then, uh, we have a new forward for that from Randy Blythe. Oh, wow. Um, so if you know, when they did the bad brain shows, you know, HR came out, did like the first 20, 25 minutes. And then Randy Blythe would come out and do all the fast hardcore stuff that HR was having trouble with. And so he's kind of almost a member, you know? and so and he's also a super fan he's a bad yeah. brain super fan so he wrote us a great forward oh, wow. and uh so the paperback version is going to come out and then now um about a month six weeks ago we began work on the pete and lou book oh no um, way yeah so there's um which is why i thought you wanted to talk to me actually no <laughs> we can, yeah let's talk about <laughs> it's it, perfect sure. so yeah. we uh you know, I, I just didn't know about that. Yeah. I started to do, you know, I'm basically a writer. I do books now. Like that's kind of what I'm doing. And so, you know, I was looking for what the next, uh, sort of hardcore related book was. So I did the HR book, but, um, I also brought in the Roger Moret book, um, to the publisher to do. So I was a part of that. I was an associate editor on that book and Mm -hmm. all that stuff. So I'm like, really like, the natural next one for me would be sick of it all guys, but I'm not particularly a big fan of books about bands um, because I just think it's, I think a lot of that information is there, you know, I think you could find that stuff on the internet, generally speaking, you know, if you read enough interviews and look at all that. But I think when a band's like been meaningful for a long enough time, I think people want to know who those guys are, you know? And so I thought, a cool idea would be to do something on Pete and Lou uh, 33 years already and sick of it all. And also um, they're blood brothers, you know, and they did this entire thing together as brothers and where every decision they've had to make everything that they've had to consider and do in this band affected their actual brother, you know? And so I'm sort of doing it from that point of view and it's going to be mostly them doing the talking but we're gonna throw in a couple of other voices here and there so like i said i interviewed gary holt for the book right right. um and uh i'm talking to kurt from dri barney from napalm death um i'm going to talk to mark from mad booking who brought them to europe for the first time um armand craig obviously richie you know um we'll talk to you know, uh, their, I want to talk to their parents. Um, I'm going to talk to their brothers that got them into music. Wow. Um okay. You know, so we're going to really try to like what made these guys tick. That's and, like
0: a really interesting take on it. Because like, I, you know, I,
1: I read the uh, band books, you know. Yeah. But I always find... I like reading them. Yeah. But I feel like some of them, if they're not really well done, mm-hmm. I feel like I know all this shit already.
0: You yeah. Know? But like to go... but. A lot of times I'll, I'll read these like books and it's like, you know, I feel like I didn't really, I just got this kind of cliff notes version of it right without actually getting to know the people. And I think right. something like this, where you really dig down deep and you get the family involved.
1: Well, did you read stuff. Roger's book? I did. Yeah. I mean, it's about him, yeah. you know, and the AF story gets told as will the sick of it all story in this book. But it's about this guy who was this, you know, came here from Cuba when yeah, he was Cuba, four yeah. years old and abusive family stuff and, like, found the punk hardcore scene and then became this this leader, you know? And he's a very interesting guy with a lot to say and he's been through a lot, you know? And and that, to me, was infinitely more fascinating than reading a book about agnostic front-the-band. Oh, totally. You know? I
0: had to read that book. I, I interviewed Roger uh, maybe two years ago, I think. Yeah. Or when when book, well,
1: actually when the book came around out. Around when the so, book came out, probably, yeah. yeah.
0: And I got the PDF of the book like the day before, I was supposed to interview him. Right. So I like speed read the whole thing. It's hard. Yeah, there's a lot. of But in uh, there. I have since gone back and reread it though. Yeah. And the same thing with actually with Harley Flanagan's book and his book right. was like 500 pages. His book's long. insane. And I the same thing. I found right. out I was going inter- to interview him the next day. Right. At like nine o'clock in the morning, they sent me a PDF. Well,
1: we'll try to get you this one earlier. <laughs> I would. I would
0: appreciate that one, man. That'd be great. You know. But what, but so yeah. When's, so what's a,
1: what, a p- p- potential release date for that one? So that'll be. Probably November this okay. year. Um, the book is called The Blood and the Sweat. Nice. Um, and it's uh, it's The Blood and the Sweat, uh, the story of Sick of It All's Kohler Brothers. And so... You know, again, Armand and, and and Craig will will be a big part of it, telling you know stories and things of that nature, and I you know talking about and complimenting things that went on and over the course of the band. But you know, I find those two guys and the way they operate, being the guitar player and the singer of a hardcore band, like I want to know who those guys are. You know, yeah. and if I was simply a fan and didn't have access to do this book, I'd want to read that book. You know, yeah, totally. and so I think that that's. That's going to be an interesting read for a lot of people, and um, you know we're we're trying to go as deep as we can. And uh, you know I've I've interviewed them already eight times um, in the last like five six weeks, um, so they're on the road now. So I'm now I'm trying to make it start to look like a book, um, but there's a lot of work to do. So I think I'll be working through May on this book, nice. and then you know we'll we'll get an editor to take a look at it and do all that stuff. But hopefully we could have it out for like October November.
0: Well, maybe we can do another th- another interview, another piece together. We'll maybe get Lou out here or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. You know, to p- help promote the book. You know, that that's a great. I, I wasn't even aware of that
1: actually. Yeah, I, I was like, I was like, well, the timing. He's got to know it's coming out because like blabbermouth ran something about it. Yeah, no, I don't. I, don't, I find out everything second, third wave, man. You know. <laughs> yeah, right. But it's you know, it's all like a. It, this all just got underway, so it's pretty new. Okay. But uh, but we're working on it. It's great because like. I know those guys from before they were a band, you know um, I used to go to the rehearsals and, yeah. you know, and then, you know, the, the interviews that I'm doing with them are just, it feels like three guys, you know, in a bar, like having a chat, you know, it's like, that's kind of how this is going because I'm reminding them of stuff. They don't remember, you know, and then like Pete will remember something that Lou doesn't remember or vice versa. And like, it's just these conversations and it's like, remember that show? And it's like, all three of us naturally were at that same show, you know, so we can talk about it, you know, from a very educated point of view. And I'd be like, do you remember when that happened? And like, no, I didn't know that that happened. And I'd be like, I was like, you weren't there for that, you know? And we'd it's just, it's been a really fun process so far um, because they're willing to, to talk and uh, we're just, we're pulling stuff out of each other, you know?
0: Yeah. That's definitely, I want to revisit that when it gets closer to the release date, you know, maybe, schedule something around that would be that'd be great fascinating i think um but yeah you know it's are you still doing anything at all with like the the industry side of music or
1: i mean the only thing i do is i manage one band um i manage a band called king's bounty okay um which has q unique who used to be in the arsonist on vocals and mike DeJean on guitar um and uh, lou medina plays drums Uh, there's a guitar player and a bass player that are younger, younger guys, um, in the band that Mike was friendly with. And, you know, so those guys I've been working with, um, for a bit now, really great band. Another just doesn't fit the mold kind of thing. They're just doing what they do. They're just like, uh, you know, like a metallic hard rock band, very melodic. Um, they have a single coming out next month. Uh, Through the Orchard um, called Denial. And then there's going to be an EP in probably April. Oh, cool. Um, But they've been, you know, gigging around. And they've just recorded the full. There's a full album done. But we just don't think it's, like, time to put out, like, 12 songs, you know. Yeah. But they've toured with Corn already. Oh, okay. Uh, They toured with P.O.D. They played with Nuclear Assault at St. Vitus. They played with La Coca Nostra at SOBs, you know. So they've done all these different types of shows. Um, and they appeal to all. So it's it's not rap rock, you know, it's more like very groovy. It's almost like, you know, sort of a, a Soundgarden Alice in Chains meets metal, you know, more, more metal than that, you know, but it's songy and it's heavy um, and they're really, really good. Have you heard, uh, Kenny Hickey's newer band, uh, that, oh, silver it's Tomb? silver Tomb. Silver Tomb? Yeah. yeah. I heard them cause, uh, they played with life of agony. Yeah. Right. You tour, know? Yeah. And so it's interesting that there's all these bands, like these sort of just hard, heavy rock bands kind of yeah. coming out, yeah. you know? And, uh, you know, so, you know, I think, you know, there's an audience for it, but it, it's just a different time for music. You know what I mean? The way you got to build a band and, you know, sort of become a brand in a way and and do all that stuff, it's very, very different. You know, the internet is a blessing and a curse, like, because it's allowing everybody to make music, but the problem is is that most shouldn't be. And most,
0: and and that's, (laughs) I was just going to say that. It's allowing everyone to make music, and
1: everyone is making music. And there's a lot of (laughs) shitty music. So... There's a lot to weed through, right? Yeah. Like the funny thing is like, here, we're sitting here, you wouldn't know it, but we're sitting here with my 10 year old daughter, right? <laughs> who, um, who, who, you know, who, who likes music a lot, but she certainly by the time, you know, I was her age, I'd seen Kiss already. You know what I mean? And so what I realized with, with my daughter is that she likes a lot of songs, Mm -hmm. but she hasn't really latched on to that many artists yet. You know, where I think when we were younger, you kind of latched on to an artist, you know, you ripped open kiss alive and you stared at, you know, the gatefold and you read all the credits and you're, you're looking at the cover while you're listening. And it's this, this, this experience, this all immersive, you know, kind of thing. And I just don't know, if a lot of kids are getting that right now, and I think metal's a little different because I think that tradition is still there a lot, you know. Um, but even with hardcore, I don't see it as much, you know, because um, I think people are buying records digitally, yeah. and you just don't have that like twelve-inch cover to like stare at and like get the the emotional side added to the music, you know. Um, it's very, very different and it's harder to penetrate, you know? Um, it's sad, A fan. You know, it's sad because I, I, I have Apple
0: Music too and, and like, you know, I, I find out about tons of shit that way, you know, a yeah. new band. I'm like, I'll, I won't even hesitate if someone's like, "I'll oh, check out this band. I'm like, all right, we'll right. cool, look
1: them up. I want to hear new music.
0: Yeah, I want to hear it, but I always like, you know,
1: I still want, the, I still want the, the big format.
0: You know? Yeah, I want to be able to look at the artwork, and it's like yeah. the way. And it I'm not a
1: big vinyl guy. Like, so like yeah, I my, am a vinyl. My guy, desire though. for music has not turned me into a vinyl guy, you know. Because I just, I think for me, it's a matter of time. I just don't have time, you know, to to really collect and sure, like you know, dig and crates and do all that stuff. Um, but I'll still get the album and I'll still listen to it one way or another. But I need like the ease of it, so I'm like that that asshole that's ruined. This whole thing because i need digital like yeah. to keep up but you know uh i love that vinyls made a bit of a comeback and i love that you know at least there's a chance for you know that tactile like i can hold this record and listen yeah. to it and you know that that's still possibility you know because it seemed for a while there that that was gone yeah you know? that
0: was that that was like pretty for a while there was like some dark days where it looked like it was over you know it vinyl, looked like it was over you know? But like also for me personally, it's like I, I, I like I usually buy either a mail order the vinyl or I'll buy it at a show if I see right. a band. And yep. I feel like at
1: the show, I'm paying into the band's economy. That's you know right. I mean? and, and it's important. Yeah, because and, especially now, like you especially ever, I guess it's like if it's sort of underground for all intents and purposes, that band is slogging it out on the road. They got to like figure out a way to pay for everything. Absolutely. And you know, and it's the same thing with, with tickets. Like I've worked with bands for, you know, God knows how many years or whatever. I'm still paying almost all the time yeah, because yeah, totally. I know that that money helps them and it's important. And, and that's why, you know, even, even when I was into things like Napster and mm-hmm. whatever, I'd still buy something I loved because yeah. you knew that that's important, you know? Um, and well, you you know, Paul Delaney, right? Sure. Yeah. So, Black Anvil,
0: good friends of mine. Love them. I've never asked them to put on the guest list for any of their shows because I want to support them. You just want to show up like a fan and, you know, and, know. and, 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 you know, we've toured together. We've gone to Europe together and done all these things, but I never asked to be on the guest list. Yeah.
1: I try very hard to just buy the tickets like, you know, Mad Balls playing on in Queens this weekend and I'm just buying a ticket. Where, where know, are they playing in Queens? They're playing Blackthorn Fifty One. Oh right, yeah, um, yep, that place. Which I have a love-hate relationship with that place because they do some pay-to-play. But so now is that? Uh, damn, what the hell! I, I, don't, I can't believe it's, it's
0: escaping me. The, there was that that other venue that was there out in uh, Elmhurst forever.
1: Oh, uh, Lamore East. Nope, no, it was uh, right off of Northern Boulevard because Lamore East. Is like a block away from where this place is. Oh, really? Where okay. it was, obviously, okay. years ago. What else was in Queens? Uh, near I saw, that like, area?
0: water play there. And oh, uh, Castle Heights. Castle Heights. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, so yeah. is
1: I haven't been out there yet. It's but, the guy, uh, yeah. one of the guys was involved in Castle Heights. Okay, yeah. So he is brings the bands in, but then it's Nikki Camp, who used to do, like, the Limelight and all that yeah. stuff. Uh, but then there's someone else there who was involved in Castle Heights who helps book the bands, and... You know, knows who to bring there. You know, so they've been doing a bunch of hardcore shows and stuff. Like AF's played there, Harley played there, Murphy's Laws played there, uh, Doggy Dog played there, Leeways played there. So, you know, they're trying to bring in all the good stuff. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so you know, you gotta support these bands, man. Like, they don't just. I'll never forget, like, you know, when we did that, in effect, home video, right? Right. And Jimmy Gestapo was talking, and he's like, we don't pull up to the gas station. They're like, oh, you're a hardcore band. with something to say. Here's some free gas. (laughs) Like, you know, it doesn't work that way. Like, you know, every every quarter counts, you know? Oh, yeah.
0: And that was even back when gas wasn't, like, Three fifty a gallon, whatever the hell it was. Now, now it was like
1: still cheaper than it was a few years ago, which is so crazy. That
0: was that. There was that one summer where gas, I remember, fuel was like over five, over five bucks, right? In some parts of the country, it was five dollars a gallon. That's right. I was like, man,
1: California was higher than out here. Yeah, yeah, because it's the car culture, but you know, but we don't price gouge, but you know, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> but I just was
0: remembering when I saw those prices on fuel going up, I was like, man, how the hell are we going to like stay on the road in the summertime? Man, it was like, well, th- there's
1: that. And it, not, I mean, listen, it's, we don't get me started. We're in a government shutdown you <laughs> oh, know, dude. and it's yeah. like, you know, and, and you have all that going on. And it's yeah. like every day I just get like more and more upset about it because these people are just getting crushed, you know? And it's like, price of gas is just one thing on that list, you know? Oh yeah. Uh, It's like feeding children and keeping homes and, you know, it's, it's all that stuff and that stuff drives me nuts. And I think that's another reason why I feel still connected to hardcore and punk because like, at least there's artists who are going to talk about that stuff, you know? Yeah, definitely. It's like metal bands are not going to talk about it. I don't want to generalize, but they're probably not right. You know? And it's like, you know, uh, it's just rough. And it's like, but for these bands to be able to survive and be out there and do this stuff, you know, you have to really support them. And it's like, you can't do the like, oh, well, they'll come through town again. It's like, maybe not.
0: Maybe not. That's, maybe they
1: won't. That's exactly it. You know, <laughs> like
0: there was, um, that's happened to me on a couple of occasions where a band, I'm like, oh, I'll see them next time they come through and they just broke up or something. Right, like or again. whatever, you, song, know? you know. And
1: then you're like, is it because I didn't pay? You know, like is it my fault? Yeah, you start getting
0: guilty. Getting those yeah. guilt trips put on <laughs> you, you know. You know. So these the next these three books that are coming out, are they are they published in the same publisher that you've been working with?
1: So all three are. So the first hip hop alphabet was through another publisher But this new publisher, which is called Permuted Press, which is part of another company called Post Hill Press, which is distributed by Simon & Schuster, actually. So, you know, I just signed to East West, you know what I mean? Um, (laughs) uh, So uh, they picked up the first hip-hop alphabet. So they're going to reissue that, do the new one. And then um, they got the rights to the HR book as well. Um, So we're doing the paperback with them. And then... um, we're doing the uh, the Pete and Lou book uh, cool. through them as well. So, you know, they've done a lot of music titles, but they've got all kinds of weird, you know, all kinds of different stuff. Like, um, what did they do? Oh, they did like some weird like Trump, coloring book yeah you know yeah, yeah. Um, they, they have like some sort of like left of left of center stuff going on yeah sure. so they did a trump coloring book it sold like a hundred thousand copies or something yeah. like that it's insane so you know but they they put out some fun books too and you know the distribution will be good and the editor that i worked with at the previous publisher went over there so that's why i'm working with him there and he he knows this stuff you know he knows underground music he respects it. And it's something that, you know, um, he did the AF book uh, the Roger book, you know, as well. Um, and so, you know, he sees that there's value in this and, um, that if we treat it right, we could do pretty well with these books and, you know, get an interesting story out there from, I think someone, most other publishers wouldn't really touch. What about the radio show? So I've been doing the radio show for about two and a half years with ill bill called merciless, um, we have been on uh, Bushwick Radio for the last you know, year or so, and uh, I guess I, I don't want to give away too much, but we're moving stations. Okay. Let's just say there's going to be a brand new station uh, in, in the East Village coming soon um, that I am involved with with Jesse Mallon uh X degeneration, you know, X heart attack, all mm-hmm. that stuff. Um, you know, he has four venues downtown. Yeah. Um and so we are going to be launching an online radio station out of Coney Island Baby. Nice. Um so We're working on that. I have another meeting with them next week. We've been talking about it for months, so this is not a new thing. But they have to build out the space. I think there's going to be a recording studio down there, too, because they want to do something there. So we're going to move our show there, too. A few other shows that you've heard before are going to be moving there with us. And then there's going to be a whole new curated Batch of shows, like very New York centric. There'll be a reggae show. There'll be like a a real punk show, garage stuff, you know. Um, It'll be all over the place, but very like New York, underground, interesting. Um, And so that's coming pretty soon. Like, you know, I would say hopefully in the next month or six weeks, I think we might be launching that. So um, we don't have a name for it yet. But we're gonna do it, and uh, I love doing the show with Il Bill, and you know we—he's been a friend again forever, and I love nonfiction and all of his stuff, and we share so much taste, and you know he's like a metal encyclopedia, and and loves hardcore as well, but he's really like the metal encyclopedia. Like you can ask him anything and he'll just remember shit that you're like, I don't know how you remember that, you know? And so our our conversations on the air are always funny. We like hate a lot of the same stuff and (laughs) we like to make fun of stuff. And, you know, that's one of the beauties of our show is we don't accept submissions from labels or publicists or or, or radio people. So we just, we play whatever we want and if we want to shit on something, we can. If we want to praise it, we can. If we want to, you know, talk about how they used to suck and now they're great, or vice versa, we can. And we have no fear of people who don't want to service us records anymore. Nice. You know, we could say whatever we want. And you know, Megadeth is often a victim of error. Well, that's our ire. Right. Well, when we were on East Village Radio when we started, the only time we ever got a cease and desist letter <coughs> <coughs> Pardon me. <coughs> See it's choking me up Was from Megadeth Because we would put the radio show Up, up on SoundCloud After we would do it uh-huh. And they didn't like that we were streaming oh, The brand new Megadeth song for free Like how many radio shows Do you think play Megadeth? Probably very little at this like,
0: stage Very yeah. few Yeah.
1: And so you want to shit on your fans like that? Which I'm not really a fan But like we felt we should play the new Megadeth It was almost like we played it like a Smasher Trash kind of thing. Like, oh, okay. We'll yeah. play the new Megadeth, and Bill and I would swear we won't listen to it before we play it on the show, and then we would say what we thought about it, you know? And, you know, and we happened to like that song, too, which was a weird thing. We were a little surprised that we liked it. It was very, like, Peace Cell's era sounding, you know? See, that's, that's the last time I liked Megadeth, really. Right, But this, this, you know, that last album, or it's probably two albums ago already, you know, we were like, oh, the song's like pretty good. It has that, that feel to it, you know? And then like, we get a cease and desist from Universal. Like you can't like stream Megadeth for free. We're like, all right, you guys go fuck yourselves. And they pull the show down from SoundCloud. Like, so it just disappears. That's no good. You know? So we're just like, all right, whatever. So Megadeth's on our shit list. Um, So that's a band we won't play ever again. But I like the sound of this show because it reminds me of college radio when I was growing up. Well, that's I mean? the thing. We want it to be college yeah, radio. We yeah. want to have like our little... We're living our little college radio fantasy like because we never did it in college. like Because we didn't really deal with college much. So, you know, we're doing it now. And we just feel that like hip-hop is worse with this stuff. But I feel like a lot of young kids with like underground music, like punk and metal and hardcore especially... They don't have a ton of respect for the elders, you know what I mean? And so they don't show, you know, they don't give the like original bands their due the way that they should, you know, and you don't have to love like every Iron Maiden record or whatever, but like to sort of not acknowledge them in the proper way. Yeah. It's just disrespectful. You know? I, I agree with
0: that, especially since the band like that's giving so much to like the
1: style. And, and still, the, are, you know? still are. Yeah. And it's like, you know, so our show is a mix of that, that sort of classic. We call it classic and new classic, you know, so you have like your maidens, you know, but then we'll play Siege, you know, and it's like, and we've played Tombs before. And really? Oh, sure. Oh, cool. And, that's you know, great. we'll play, you know primitive weapons and we'll play you know we play plenty of black anvil and you know so that's as new as we get you know like we don't have to be the cool kids on the block playing every obscure new band but there's stuff that we like you know yeah. and you know i heard tombs i've seen you guys too so oh really yeah i saw you oh. guys at vitus and oh, cool you know and um, you know, so it's like that's was a discovery for me. Like I'd been seeing, oh, this band Tombs is playing around, and they played with these bands who I like. You know, oh, so I wound up checking out your band. Nice, you know. Appreciate and that. So then we'd always give at, at least a play to something we like because it's so rare that we really like something new. You know. Yeah. And so true. it's tough. Um, so we'll try, you know, to to give some some newer bands a shot. Like there's a couple of newer hardcore bands we liked. Uh, also, like Outlive Death from Long Island. You know those guys? I don't know them. Those guys are really good. Um, no, Incendiary. Yeah, that, that this is like newer, newer, newer than, than that. Yeah. Okay, yeah, Um Outlive Death and there's Ake. You know uh, Ryan. Yeah, uh, you know, okay. I've his heard band, that, yeah. you know, and uh, you know we'll play stuff like that just because it's like thank God these bands do what they do like they're keeping like a tradition of like a certain kind of hardcore you know that that people don't do anymore you know where they it's gotten very metallic or, you know, everybody wants to sound like Turnstile or everybody's trying to go in the code orange direction and, you know. And, seven string guitars. Yeah. And it's just yeah. like, and it's all cool. I love yeah. Turnstile. I think they're great, yeah. you know. But ultimately, this, you know, I talked to Freddie Madball about this because they booked the Black and Blue Bowl. And one of the issues that they have in booking it is this scene moves so fast, right? True. That's Where, like. True. In 2019, terrors like a fucking old band, you know, yeah, which is bizarre, yeah, you know, but that's how fast the shit moves. That like it's not crazy that in two years nobody gives a shit about Turnstile, you know, and I don't know if that'll be the case or not, but you have to consider it, you know, because there's a difference between being 15 and 18. Yeah, you those know?
0: three years are huge it's years, a big deal, yeah, yeah.
1: Um, and so it moves really fast and. You know, so and sick of it all. We were talking about this too with Pete and Lou that they're like, you know, to keep alive as a hardcore band, you know, you have to replenish the new kids. Like yeah, you new- always
0: gotta have new fans. And so
1: yeah. they're like, that's our challenge, you know, because we know like there's a few hundred older heads that'll always come see us and whatever, but we have to be smart about who we play with or who comes with us on tour because we want those younger kids. Like we need to turn them on, you know, in the sort of like, this is how it's done kids. Like not to be arrogant about it, but just sort of like, yeah we're still probably better than the band you came to see you know like that kind of stuff and you have to have that attitude like you have to have that sort of you know be a little pompous and be like you know what still we're living in a fuck you world and we're gonna try to blow your band away oh yeah that's all that's some primate there's something cool about the competition like i don't mind
0: that competition is good i've always felt that always that that competitive edge that sort of you know like i said that primate yeah. vibe is like something you got to well, have well
1: gary holt was like he goes you know when sick of it all comes on tour with you you play a little better that play night a little better that's for sure he's like our shows during that run were pretty good <laughs> they like cuz yeah. we were like we got to top that energy and that's going to be hard you know and so you know th- i like that that vibe, like that's cool. Like some people, are like oh, the hardcore scene is so cool because it's not competitive. Yeah, it is. It's real competitive. I
0: think though, everything that has to do with like aggressive music is a competitive scene. You don't man. think
1: every band wants to blow the other band oh, away? Dude, we talk about it in the van all the time, man. It's like I, I want bands to want to blow yeah. each other away. But I want people
0: kinda... to try to blow me away too. That's man. right, because it it's better. like
1: that's right, yeah. and it's going to make the show better for kids in the yeah. audience. It's like I keep saying, kids, like I'm fucking <laughs> eighty. I just turned 51 on Sunday. <laughs> I'm right behind you, bro. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I figured we were about the same, yeah, age, about the same we age. Yeah, about the same age. Did I mean... anybody ever tell you that you look like MC Search? Really? Do you ever no get one. that? No one's ever told me that. Uh, as soon as I came in. Wow, all right. And I've seen you on stage, but yeah. I, it's different, you know? It's different in but, real life. <laughs> but being in the room, like being five feet away from you, I'm like, he looks a lot like yeah, MC t- Search. That's a compliment, man. Yeah, and because y- you look like him now. Okay. you know what i mean yeah. so not so much when you had like the flat top you that's know pretty cool Those fade cool, deal but yeah. you look a little like mc search yeah no one said that
0: to me but i'll take that for sure pop pop goes the weasel the weasel <laughs> well on that note thanks a lot for coming out it's cool search I appreciate it call me, that's it you're gonna call me search for now <laughs> uh,
1: but yeah and and his name is michael you know, maybe His real name uh, is Michael. maybe
0: there's maybe you know how everyone has a double.
1: I've never seen you in the same place together.
0: Hey man, that's the you mystery.
1: might be MC Search. The mystery now, <laughs> man.
0: <laughs> and thanks for listening, everyone. And I'll see you next week. been listening to metal matters a gimme radio podcast we'll be back next week so be sure to subscribe and never miss out also be sure to check out gimme radio via web ios or android for one of the best metal communities in the world exclusive interviews and merch and so much more
1: thursday's gonna be 50 degrees (laughs) yes Warm, no shit I, I had
0: to go to uh, meet my uh, my accountant like stop by his house to pick up some paperwork yesterday and uh, and I, I, I humped it out there to uh, it's like First Avenue and 38th Street mm-hmm. and the dude wasn't there oh god! And I was coming all the way in and you just
1: but standing there even for one minute is too much
0: yeah <laughs> I was I came all the way out from my like Coney Island basically Oh because I, I was you know working at home because it was too cold to leave the you know, right right you don't anymore.
1: even leave the house and then
0: uh so yeah, it was pretty brutal and then I'm all out there for nothing two and, and, and a half hours of my day just shot and and, not, and he never showed up no well he he was like oh, I was in the building they had an intercom, you know it's like you could have him page me I go, how, how, how am I supposed to know these you're things? supposed to
1: just know that yeah
0: and then uh, so that I couldn't get warm. I came home. And then I was like cold for like three hours. You know what I mean? I just couldn't it's warm horrible. up. Horrible. Yeah, but uh, horrible. but I stopped by today He to I was in the city, you know, today, and I got my stuff from him. So it's right. all good.